0: morning. It's good to be back. First week I was here, I talked to you about the sufficiency of God's grace. His grace is enough. Enough is not okay or all right or adequate. His his grace is just right. It's exactly the amount I need. Second week, I talked about miracles and the human component of miracles, that almost all miracles in Scripture have some human component. Let the guy down through the roof, go wash the mud out of your eyes, whatever it is. Last week, we talked about trust as the heart of the kingdom, trusting God like a child in the dark. Trust only works in the dark. If you can see everything you got planned out, you got your business plan, you got everything all scoped out, you don't need to trust God. But trust is the heart of the kingdom. And this morning, I want to talk to you about forgiveness. Uh, it's It's an essential part of relationship. No relationship works without it. Just like life doesn't work without relationship, relationship doesn't work without forgiveness. And sometimes there's a snapshot in culture or in literature on a kingdom idea that captures it. One of those snapshots comes from a fellow named Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo was, lived in the 1800s. And in the early 1800s in France, where he lived, injustice was a part of the fabric. They had an aristocracy and the elite. They were corrupt, they had power, and they were unjust, mostly to the poor, to women, and to children. And Victor Hugo wrote a book published in 1862 that by many is considered one of the greatest novels or books in the 19th century. It's called Les Miserables. And in the English-speaking world, the novel is usually translated the miserable ones or the wretched poor or the victims. It's the story of... People, young and old, who band together, poor people, who band together against corrupt power, and they revolt. And it captures the lives of several people. Now, I I just have to tell you this. I've only been to one Broadway show in my entire life, and that was to see Les Miserables on stage, the musical. And I'm sitting there, and half the time I'm in tears because I'm saying I have never heard theology captured like this. I've never heard the kingdom of God expressed in such a way. And there have been several movies made, one a couple of years ago that was a musical. But it captures the lives of several folks. But one character in particular is at the heart of it. His name is Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is an ex-convict. And as this story explores the nature of grace and of law, early on in the story, there's an act of forgiveness that captures what I want to talk about with you this morning. Jean Valjean is a bitter man. He has been unjustly accused and imprisoned. He has spent 19 years on galley ships. The the first charge was five years for stealing a loaf of bread for his starving sister and her children. He tried to escape several times and he ended up getting 14 more years for his escape. So he's just out of prison, 19 years, and he ends up in the town of I think that's how you say it. And the bishop of that town finds him, brings him into his home, gives him a hot meal, because he has nothing, gives him a hot meal and lets him sleep there overnight. In the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up for whatever reasons, whatever his fears or his concerns, he steals the silver service of the bishop and runs off into the night. And the gendarmes catch him and bring him back, and this is the moment that sets up what I want to talk to you about. This is the moment that they bring him back. Get in there! Put him down! Stay there! Ah. Monsignor! we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. He had the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind, you forgot. I gave these also, would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, Melissa, this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty, Now Lord's blessing goes with you. But remember this, my brother See, in this some higher plan You must use this precious silver To become an honest man By the witness of the martyrs By the passion and the blood God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. That's the candlestick moment. That's the moment of forgiveness. The rest of the story explores what happens because of that moment. So what about forgiveness? Well, it's, it's the heart of relationship. It's, it's part of a f- cluster of qualities like grace and mercy and compassion and gentleness and kindness. All of us know. I mean, the, you have the, 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 the whole business of forgiveness pops up every week in our lives. Ruth and I had these four kids, and when they were smaller, between, I say, four under the age of seven or eight, we're sitting at the, at the dinner table one night, and stuff always happens when you have little kids at the dinner table. How many of you know that's true? That's like not in the Bible, but I'm just telling you that's true. And uh, there was a guy who wrote a book back in the day that, that, that was entitled, Where Two or Three Are Gathered Together, Someone Spills His Milk. And so that's, that's what it's like at a dinner table with small kids, and so we're sitting there and we have three girls and a boy. We have Erica, Jennifer, Susanna, and then Chris. He's the youngest. And we're sitting there, and, and all of a sudden, milk goes on the floor. And I'm looking a different direction, but I catch it out of the corner of my eye, and it's Susanna, our third daughter. And I, um, I just whirled around this, you know, I sort of asked the parental question. Susanna, why did you do that? See, now, it's like a kid says, at 6.02, I think, I'll just, you know, take care of the milk. Just give it a shot, you know? It, it, it was an accident, clearly, but I said, why did you? And she said, Daddy, I didn't do it. I said, Susanna, I saw, you know, I know I wasn't looking right at you, but my peripheral vision is great, and, and you did it. I saw you do it. She said, Daddy, I didn't, I didn't do it. And her voice is starting to quiver. And I said, Susanna, you'll be in more trouble if you keep telling me the story because I saw you. And about that time, Jennifer, her older sister, said, I did it, Daddy. Now, <clears throat> I hate that. Because now, I have to ask forgiveness of like a five-year-old. It's just embarrassing. And so I said, honey, I, I, daddy's sorry. I thought I said, and, I'm, and tears are streaming down her face. She says, it's okay, I forgive you. You know, I, you know, and that is embedded in my psyche. But the fact is that forgiveness is at the heart of any relationship. I have a friend who's a family and marriage counselor who says it's, it's at the heart of marriage. He defines marriage as an ongoing series of forgivenesses. Marriage doesn't work if you don't forgive. Marriage doesn't work if you harbor something or several somethings. There's no better story in the Bible that captures this idea than the story of what we call the prodigal son. It's actually the story of the gracious father. Here's a kid in a Jewish village who, he's the youngest boy, and he asks for his inheritance early, which is just unheard of. It it shames the family, all of this. And the father, in the story, gives him his inheritance, which would never happen in a Jewish village or in a Jewish home. So when Jesus tells the story, just the, the very idea has got to set the people's teeth on edge. And the kid takes the inheritance, goes off, Fouls up the family name, blows all the money on wine women and song, ends up as a Jewish kid in a foreign country slopping hogs. There's no worse image that a Jewish listener can have than to be a Jewish kid in a foreign country slopping hogs. The total expression of uncleanliness and distance and whatever. And this is how the story goes. Verse 17 of Luke 15 says it this way. I love this image, here's this old guy. I don't know how long the kid was gone, maybe several years, and every night, in my mind, he's out there looking down the road to see if he can see his boy. And one evening, he sees him framed against the setting sun. Maybe it's the gate, maybe it's the, you know, the Benezra shuffle or whatever, but he recognizes his boy. And he starts running toward him. You can imagine the joy in his heart for seeing his boy. And he starts out slow, and he picks up speed, and those ancient legs are moving. And he throws himself into his boy's arms and hugs him and kisses him. And his son has rehearsed the line. Father, I've sinned against heaven. Against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's like the father says without saying it. Shut up, kid. You had your call. This is not your call. You did what you're gonna do, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do, and here's what we're gonna do, quick. Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, that's the signet ring that symbolizes all the legal authority. You know, you used to do wax and you roll the signet ring in and that was all of the legal authority. He gives back to him. He'd squandered everything and he gives it back to him. And then he says, put sandals on his feet, which is the sign that he's not a slave. And then says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's a picture of what happens when my deepest deepest need for redemption is met by the good news of God. When I really experience forgiveness, here's the heart of what I'm going to say in these next few minutes, and I'm going to say it several times in different ways. When I really experience forgiveness, what happens? I become a forgiver. If I really experience forgiveness. If I'm just going through the motions, that doesn't happen. But if I'm really experiencing forgiveness, I become a forgiver. When I have a candlestick moment in my life, it lights up my world. It gives me direction. Forgiveness is the face of grace. It's the door to redemption. Point one, a forgiver... Redeems. A forgiver redeems. Redemption is an interesting word. Some of you ladies remember S and H green stamps back when you could get these green stamps and go and redeem them for other little gifts. Ephesians 1:7, Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, which is a church in Turkey. And this is what he says about Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now today, the idea of redemption doesn't connect very well with an affluent society like we are here in the United States. But in ancient Roman times, the Roman Empire in which Paul was a citizen, slavery was an accepted institution. Slaves were bought and sold like horses and cattle. However, slaves could be set free... And they were set free by anyone who wanted. They could buy a slave, pay the purchase price, then set him or her free. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, there was a specific word for doing that, to buy back for the purpose of setting free. And that's the word that's used in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption. You have been bought back for the purpose of setting free through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. There have been a lot of songs written about redemption. There are a lot of lot of songs written about God's grace, gospel songs that you would know, like Amazing Grace, sort of the sort of the second national anthem of the United States. You hear it played on bagpipes at military ceremonies and all of that. Or at Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burden self soul found liberty at Calvary and those songs always evoke something in me but there's a there is a tune not a gospel song a secular song that haunts me when i hear it it's this tune It's a theme song for another film called Schindler's List. World War II and the horrific treatment of Jews in in Europe just boggles the mind even 70 years later or longer. Oscar Schindler was a businessman. He was a flawed man. He was a playboy. He was a gambler. He was a conniver. He is not a guy you want dating your daughter. Okay. Oskar Schindler was an ethnic German brought up in what is now the Czech Republic. And he moved in as Germany conquered countries to make money. He collaborated with Gestapo and took over businesses and so forth. But somewhere along the line, something happened and something in him turned. And instead of buying businesses, he used businesses to buy Jews. He literally redeemed Jews one at a time by buying them. It was redemption from death. A memorial tablet across from his birth house in Svitovi says in Czech and in German this, to the unforgettable savior of 1,200 persecuted Jews. They were redeemed. The idea of being redeemed is so profound and so deep. And the idea of being perchance a redeemer is so beautiful. When we forgive, we become redeemers. Point two, a forgiver unlocks doors. You let people out. When you redeem people, you let them out. Listen to this passage in Luke, the sixth chapter. Luke 6, Jesus is talking about human relationship with his disciples. This is what it says. Judge not, you'll not be judged. This is verse 37 of Luke 6. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. And then this qualifying phrase. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, guys like me tend to use that verse just before the offering. Okay? We just connect it to the give and it'll be given. To, and it's true, but this is not an offering verse. We can use it for that, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is all four of those things. Jesus is saying, here's how life works. If you judge somebody, don't do that. Because if you do, it'll come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into you. If you condemn somebody, don't do that. Because if you do, it'll come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running. If you do a teaspoon of judgment, it'll come back a tablespoon. If you give five gallons of judgment, it'll come back ten gallons. It's just a principle of life. That's just how it is. You see it in war all the time. These people bomb an ammunition depot and they go bomb an ammunition depot in a school. I mean, it it happens all the time. But he says if you forgive, that'll come back to you too, plus a little. And if you give, that'll come back to you, plus a little. The idea is captured in the story of the gracious father. Both of them get something from it, they're both partying, partying. It's not just the kid. Everybody's partying, except the elder brother, he's got issues. But the point is, (laughs) at that candlestick moment, when you forgive somebody, you unlock their doors. They're free. When we don't forgive, here's what happens. We send ourselves to jail. Both the unforgiven and the unforgiving are in jail in adjacent cells. That's how it worked. When my mother, when my father left my mother, he was a pastor, I loved him dearly, when he left my mother after 29 years of marriage, I didn't get it. It took me eight years to be able to hug my father. Both of us were in jail, both of us. You say, yeah, but that's really painful, and when you don't understand, yeah, I I get that. But this doesn't say forgive if it's not painful or forgive if it's just a little deal. Here is the creator of the universe, Jesus, who comes and takes all of our junk, all of it, and forgives it without saying, I want this. But he just says, I forgive it. And then if you want to follow me, you can. But I'm going to forgive you in advance, if you will. I'm going to forgive you at the front end if you want to turn on the tap of water that gives you life. You can have that. My mother died four years ago at the age of 100 years old and four weeks. I think she got to 100 and said, I'm out. Foth, you got it, you know. She is buried in Fairhaven Memorial Cemetery in Santa Ana, California. And at her memorial service, when we placed her body in the ground, after, after the service, I just wandered around and looked at headstones. Sometimes it's interesting to look at headstones and think, what was that life like? And about 100 feet from where my mother's body is, there's another woman's body in the ground. It was a, a Dutch woman. She was the first licensed watchmaker in the country of Holland. Her name is Corrie ten Boom. Some of you, again, who are a bit older know the name Corrie Ten Boom. Her father, Papa Ten Boom, was a watchmaker. He trained his two adult daughters to fix and make watches, repair watches. And when the war started, they hid Jews in their home in Amsterdam. They were found out and sent to the camps. The father died almost immediately, and, and Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to a camp called Ravensbrück, where over time Betsy died a long and torturous death. 1945, Corey was freed from Ravensbrück concentration camp, actually by a clerical error. Corey's message of Christ's love often included phrases like this: "There is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still." Or Jesus is victor. She didn't see herself as a survivor. She saw herself as a victor. Or you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. She tells a story in 1947 of being in Germany, having gone there to tell the good news about Jesus' forgiveness. And this is how she relates it. These are her words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I just spoke and moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, connected their belongings. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are! Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from you, from your lips, Fräulein. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world, rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. A candlestick moment. Three, a forgiver has attitude. We live in a day where people say, that dude's got attitude and it's not a good thing But this attitude is a good thing. The attitude that we are to carry, Jesus says, is this. And he models it on the cross. He says, Father, forgive Foth. Foth's not in the Bible, but I am I'm included there. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I throw him on the cross. I say, there, take that. And he says, fine, that's the way I'll redeem you. That's the way I'll love you. And he turns my action inside out and redeems me with it. He buys me back. With it, a candlestick moment. If I can get these out. And they came to Jesus, the disciples, and said, so like, <clears throat> how many times do we have to forgive? And he says... Seventy times seven. Well, I'm not a great mathematician, but that, like that's 490 for Pete's sake. I mean, I might do three times. What, what could that possibly mean? Well, some say, well, it's a metaphor for you. just keep on forgiving, and that's exactly right. See, maybe we have to keep forgiving in our minds over and over. Sometimes, then it comes out our mouths, but we have to keep forgiving. Because it takes so long for our emotions to catch up. It's hard. Nobody said it was easy to forgive. But because he has forgiven us everything, I can forgive my dad something. Because he has done it all, I can do a little, relatively speaking. Well, let me put it another way. When is it that I would like Jesus to stop forgiving me? Like when, when should that be? If he doesn't stop forgiving me and I need forgiveness like every time I turn around, it may not be huge things, but that's what makes relationship work. Those are candlestick moments. Those are the things that capture me. If I want to be free, if I want to stay free I have to forgive you say but you don't understand how deep the hurt was no I don't but you don't you don't get how long the abuse went on no I don't know that but he does and you don't know about my deal or the other deals it's not the point the point is If I want to be a whole human being, if I don't want to be an invalid, He has given me the power by His Spirit to forgive. He has given that power to forgive. And there's one thing better than being forgiven, and that's to be a forgiver. What raw power there is to be a forgiver, because when I'm a forgiver, then I'm a redeemer. And when I'm a redeemer, everybody wins, me included. Maybe you could say it with me. I'm just going to say the sentence and then I'll repeat it and you say it with me, okay? A forgiver is a redeemer. Let's say it together. A forgiver is a redeemer. Let's say it one more time. A forgiver is a redeemer.